0: Scripture this morning is from Philippians 4, uh, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Drunkards, swearers, sensual creatures, miserable persons. That is what the great Puritan preacher Richard Baxter had to say, not about atheists, Not about non-Christians, but about the Quakers of all people. I mean, I really have a hard time picturing the guy in the oatmeal box deserving that, right? But the 17th century was a period in Christian history in Europe that was just filled with angry conflicts over theological issues. And Richard Mao, the church uh, theologian and historian, uh, wrote in his book, um, the Quaker leader James Naylor announced that he was compelled by, quote, the Spirit of Christ to respond to these accusations by calling Richard Baxter a serpent, a liar, a child of the devil, uh, a miserable hypocrite, and a dumb dog. Dang, Quaker oats. Wow. How would you respond if somebody said those kinds of things about you? I mean, what would that do to you? You know, part of what's sad about all this, as Richard Mao goes on, is that the Puritans and the Quakers were actually dealing with some pretty significant biblical issues. They were both trying to read God's word and, and they were coming to different conclusions. But as Mao said, unfortunately, uh, all that could have been gained that was good was lost because of the anger and the rhetoric. Those doctrinal arguments uh, maybe sound a little quaint to us, right? Like, why were these people so upset? What were they yelling about? What was the big deal? They, They were all believers in Christ. Couldn't they just get along? Well, yeah, do we do much better ourselves? I mean, we don't probably publish nasty pamphlets like that. But we do go online sometimes and publish our own version of an angry 17th century pamphlet highlighting where those people are wrong and how they need to be straightened out or airing our grievances. We can hold on to grudges. We call people ugly names, if not in print, maybe in our hearts. We distance ourselves from people that have hurt us. Our egos get hurt. We take things the wrong way. And then we assume the worst about others. We come to church with a smile on our faces, maybe, but inside we're just sort of roiled up. And and the list of people that we won't trust and we won't work with gets longer and longer. We're angry, we're resentful, and we don't have any peace. It's not always conflict, right? I mean, sometimes we get drawn into other people's drama because misery loves company, and when we're upset, we want to find someone to agree with us. Or really, sometimes it's just the reality of life being hard and difficult, and and worry and anxiety and stress can just build up and, and wear us down. We're hurt by the friend who doesn't seem to have time for us. We're worn down by the person who doesn't seem to have any boundaries and doesn't make good decisions in their lives and wants us to be responsible for trying to fix all the problems they create for themselves. And you're burdened by painful trials that you or other people are going through. Is it really possible to live at peace? Even people that you've been in conflict with. Is it possible to have peace in the middle of angry partisan battles and and all the conflict in the world and and just the hard things going on in our lives? An ancient greeting and blessing in the church was peace be with you. God wants us to know his peace. But here's the thing. I think what Paul is helping us see in this passage is We will never know peace on our own. The world is deeply broken and you can't fix it. People are profoundly complex and you cannot change them. Situations are beyond your control. You will never know peace on your own. But God invites us to know His peace. And that's what we want to see as we look through this passage in Philippians 4 this morning. So if you haven't already... Uh, Go ahead and take out your Bibles and turn to Philippians 4. Paul is writing to these early followers of Jesus in the Roman colony of Philippi. And there's a conflict that's been going on between two leading women in the church that's causing some tension. An external pressure of persecution is causing anxiety and worry for them. And Paul is writing to them about all of those things—the everyday worries of life, and pressure, and stress, and conflict—can can anyone relate to that? Anyone ever experience that? But through the Apostle Paul, God wants to give us encouragement and hope that we really can know His peace in those things. Corey Ten Boom was a Christian in the Netherlands in World War II. She and her father and her sister were arrested by the Nazis for helping Jews escape. Her father died in prison. She and her sister were sent to the Ravensbrück slave labor camp, where they were, of course, abused and tortured and beaten and worked half to death. And in fact, her sister Betsy did die in the camp. But Corey survived and after World War II returned to the Netherlands where she had grown up to help rebuild her country and rebuild people's lives and help spread the gospel as a foundation for bringing peace. She had just finished giving a talk at a church in Germany when a man came up to her afterwards and said, Fraulein, how good it was to hear you talk About how God forgives all our sins and casts them into the depths of the sea. And he held out his hand to shake hers, and Corey recognized him as a guard from the Ravensbrook labor camp. And he said, Frylon, how good it is to hear of God's forgiveness, but I would like to hear it from you. Do you forgive me? And Corey said, It could not have been many seconds that he stood there with his hand held out, but it seemed like hours as I was faced with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. I knew that I had to do it because my heavenly Father says, if you do not forgive those who sin against you, neither will you be forgiven. So I prayed, help me, Father. I I can at least raise my hand. I will do that much. Help me forgive this man. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I raised my hand and held it out to him. And she said, the most amazing thing happened as I held his hand. A current started in my shoulder and flowed down through my arm until a warmth filled me that did not come from me. And I was able to actually clasp his hand and with truth say, brother, I forgive you with all my heart. And this healing warmth came over me, she said. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former prisoner and the former prison guard united in Christ. Look at what Paul says here in these first few verses in chapter 4. I entreat you, Odia, and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord And I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and all those whose names are in the book of life. I think Paul is saying first we have to focus on the big picture. We have to focus on what really matters. Because when we get stuck in conflict, it's so easy to just focus on the conflict and lose sight of what really is important. These women, Paul says, have worked side by side with me for the gospel. They've been partners with him in sharing God's good news of forgiveness and redemption in Christ. But now, just like us, sometimes when we're in conflict, instead of focusing on the gospel, we forget the gospel and we focus on what's been done to us. When we've been hurt, it's easy for us to obsess over who did what, who said what, and when, and how, and and what they meant. I told them, but they wouldn't listen. I knew we shouldn't have done that. I told you we should have gone there. Why did they have to do it that way? I can't talk to her anymore. Well, not after he let me down. Notice there's no mention here of what this argument was about. Isn't that interesting? And Paul appeals to both of them, And there's no way to read what he writes here and have any idea whose side Paul is on because he's not on a side. He's not concerned about who's right and who's wrong and who needs to win and who gets put forward. That's what we want when we're in conflict, right? I, I want to get allies. I want to get ammunition. I want to come up with a battle plan. And Paul's saying, can you step back and and focus on the big picture? You are co-laborers for the gospel. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's goal is agree with each other in the Lord. In other words, make this about the cause of Christ, not about your cause, your claim. Will you help God? Will you ask God to help you put aside your hurts, your ego, your pride, and your ideas for the sake of Christ, to agree in the Lord. Because remember, whose side are you on? We're, we're supposed to be together on the Lord's side. Because if we're not careful, all our energy ends up directed at the conflict, at lining up allies, at figuring out how we can win instead of on worship and service and outreach and growth. Because we only have so much creativity and time and energy. And if I'm spending it focused on the conflict, that means I'm not spending it focused on Christ and on the cause. When I am stuck in conflict, I'm not making myself useful for Christ. So agree with each other in the Lord doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. It means for the sake of the Lord, we put those things aside for what really matters. The mission that God has for us and an eternity with Christ and that person that I'm in conflict with. And some of us have been holding on to things that we just need to drop because they don't matter in the big picture. You will never know peace on your own. We know peace by stepping outside of ourselves to remind ourselves of what really matters. We want things to go our way, but having things my way is not what brings peace. Respect each other, Paul says, and remember what's really important. Did you catch the notice for the Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I mean, Paul gives this beautiful sort of implicit reminder, guys, your names are all written together in God's remembrance of those who loved him, those who've been saved and called according to his purposes. God rescued you from death and gave you life to invite you into his mission and make you part of his family To become like Christ, and love Christ, and serve Christ, and share Christ. That's the big picture. He says, that's what your life is about. Not this thing that seems so important in front of you. Because the conflict has an impact on other people, even if it doesn't seem like it. You may think it's just between you and that other person. You, You may not have even talked to anyone about it, but when it's wrapped around your heart, it's distracting you, and it's bringing division and distraction in what God needs His people to be doing. And it's hurting this congregation's witness for Christ. So in verse 3, Paul calls on this loyal fellow, true companion, to help them. Because we often need other people to help us sort through the issues, don't we? To sort through the tangle of our own hearts. It's not a sign of weakness. It's not a criticism from Paul. It's just a recognition that when I'm stuck there, the problem is I'm not seeing things correctly. I've missed the big picture, and I need someone to help me in that. And, and all that comes together in this second thing, I think we could say. Paul's saying, focus on the body. Focus on the body of Christ. Because the Bible pictures the church as a body with Jesus as the head, and we are all different members of it. We are connected to one another, and what we do to one another impacts one another. And Paul's saying this unresolved conflict is like a cancer. It's like the body fighting itself and bringing destruction. And the problem is, see, when I'm in conflict, I don't see it that way. I'm, you know, I'm, you're the cancer, and I'm trying to get rid of you. And Paul's saying, no, the the conflict itself, that destructive conflict, is the cancer that we need to get rid of. What if, as I'm aware that I'm in conflict from someone, my first perception was not to look at what they've done wrong, but I need help in this. Because I don't want this to destroy me and damage the body. I need help. I'm not seeing things the right way. I'm too focused on this issue. And we need others to help us, Paul is saying. But then the rest of us who maybe aren't involved in the conflict can run the danger of being part of the problem by being passive. I mean, nobody likes conflict. I mean, maybe some people, right, like sort of thrive on drama. But most of us don't like conflict and and troubles. and, And, you know, we'd like to step back and maybe just hope and pray that they'll work it out. But Paul is calling on this, other believer to step in and be willing to invest himself with these women because they're not able to fix it on their own. We see someone that's struggling and hurting even. Maybe it's not even conflict. And, you know, sometimes we're just hesitant because, I oh, you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Believe me, I know. I have plenty of experience saying the wrong thing. But maybe better than saying nothing. Just be there, be willing to listen. Paul is pointing out we have a role in other people's problems because this congregation has a part to play and a vested interest in seeing this conflict resolved. I mean, look back up at verse 1 that we ended with last week. My brothers whom I love and I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. Do you hear the language Paul is Paul is saying, I love all of you. I care for all of you. You are all together, my joy and my delight, my dearest friends. Is that how you see one another? Is that how you treat one another? My dear friend, my beloved is stuck in a bad place. And if I really care for them, I'm, I'm going to be willing to step in. Even when it's uncomfortable, even when I don't even maybe know what to do. The people around you are your family. And we have a responsibility to one another in that. So when you notice that someone hasn't been here recently, call them, text him. Just ask, how are you doing? I've missed you. Maybe you see someone who's struggling. Maybe it's obvious that somebody's kind of avoiding another believer, or they just always sort of have an attitude and a tone towards that person. Man, it's easy to just not say anything and say, well, that's just the way he is. Paul's saying, are you willing to get invested for the sake of peace in the body? You don't get drawn into taking sides, but we don't ignore it and hope it goes away. We pray, we we are willing to step in and maybe we call on others who can help. Focus on the body of Christ because we're here to help and care for one another. Because we won't know peace on our own. And when we're in the middle of conflict and difficulty, you know, sometimes, of course, all we can see is how things aren't going the way they're supposed to. And we forget all the good that we have. And so then I think the third thing Paul is saying is. Focus on the blessings that we have in Christ. That's what he goes on to talk about, right? In verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, always. This is a church facing persecution. It's a church in the middle of conflict. And he says, rejoice, rejoice and be glad in God. And he knows that we won't listen. So he says, again, I say rejoice. I know you don't believe me. So I'm going to repeat myself. You are called to rejoice in God in the middle of this thing. You may have been deeply hurt. You, you may have really messed up. But Paul says rejoice. Why? How? Well, a couple of things. Remember the Lord's presence, I think he says. The Lord is at hand, or the Lord is near. The Lord is the sovereign one, the ruler of all things, the creator and sustainer. And Paul is saying, whatever you're going through, conflict, suffering, rejection, financial stress, trouble, two things. It's not exactly sure what Paul means here, so there may actually be a double meaning. One, the Lord is near, meaning his return is soon to happen, and we will be with him in glory. But of course, the Lord is also near to us in all those things that we're going through. The Lord is at hand to strengthen, to encourage, to comfort, to forgive, to heal, to bless, he says. The Lord is near. In fact, can we Say that together, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. In the situation and in his soon return, it gives me peace that I don't have to worry about those things. The Lord is near, he's saying. You feel overwhelmed? Say it together, the Lord is near. You don't know how this situation is going to turn out and there's no relief in sight. The Lord is near. You're stuck in conflict, and that person just doesn't even seem to want to reconcile. The Lord is near. You're afraid. You're alone. The Lord is near. Remember God's presence. The Lord is near. He has not forgotten you. He's not abandoned you. He's not rejected you. The Lord is near, Paul says. But also remember The Lord's patience, the patience with us, the patience that we see in Christ. Let your reasonableness, he says in verse 5, be known to everyone. Other translations may say, let your gentleness be evident, your calm forbearance, your meekness. It's, It's a word that kind of gives a sense of not demanding one's rights. In other words, that's what we see modeled in Jesus' life, and that is especially how we understand God treating us. God is patient, long-suffering, not a harsh taskmaster, not demanding, but He is kind and patient with us. I got really excited uh, earlier this week. Some of you uh, probably enjoy Chick-fil-A, maybe not as much as I do, uh, but the Chick-fil-A over on uh, 86th Street uh, east of here, they just went through a remodeling, and so they're kind of having a reopening and contest where they're giving away Chick-fil-A for a year. Yeah, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord for His provision. So this week, the contest was take a picture of yourself in our store and tag yourself in the picture, and the one that gets the most likes will be the winner of 52 coupons for Chick-fil-A sandwiches. Man up from heaven. So, I posted the picture and tagged them in it and I threw it up on Facebook and 160 or something of you were kind to like join in because I, you know, sort of sweetened the pot and said I'm certainly willing to share, you know, if you guys help make this happen. And I didn't win. But I did win because They weren't clear on their instructions. My default is to have things set to private so that only friends see it. And so they didn't see that I had created this post. And they said, well, we didn't see it. I said, but I had more likes than anyone else. And they said, well, sorry, we didn't see it and we already gave it away. And man, there was this part of me that wanted to pound the table (laughs) and call the manager and demand my rights and argue and here I am preaching on let your gentleness, your reasonableness, your calm confidence be evident to all. That's the temptation we face, isn't it? I wasn't treated the way I deserve. I didn't get what I think. I didn't even deserve it, but I was upset about it. Right? It was a free gift, but I wanted to demand it. Paul is saying, let your gentleness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, those are not typical American virtues. We are taught to force our way through and take the hill and make things happen and stand up for our rights and don't let anyone push you around. Let your gentleness, your meekness, your long-suffering, Be evident to all, because that is how God is with you. Don't be anxious about it, Paul says. But with thanksgiving, in prayer and supplication, let your requests be known to God. So you better believe that I prayed that they would straighten that Chick-fil-A thing out. But they didn't. And I was still able to give thanks to God. Because I have so many blessings in Christ. And if I don't get a year full of free Chick-fil-A, yet I will still praise Him. <laughs> because the Lord is good, though the barn is not filled with fried chicken. <laughs> See, worry and stress make us freak out. They, they feel, make us feel like, I've got to grab the wheel. I've got to take control of this. I've got to make it turn out the way it should. And Paul's saying, no, let me show you a different way to know peace. In everything, it doesn't mean 24 hours a day, in every situation where you're tempted to anxiety and stress, present your requests and give thanks to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds. Do you see how that works? Because now my peace is not about getting the outcome. It's not about getting the chicken. It's about having Jesus in the middle of not having the chicken because he's greater. The chicken would be great. But Jesus is better, and his peace is better than a year full of chicken with anxiety. Christians show that we live differently because we don't buy into panic. We don't buy into fear-mongering. We don't let the sarcasm and the resentment and the condescension and the judgment leak out of us. We don't get drawn into the angry partisan divide that our culture wants us to buy into because, you know, those people are going to ruin everything and destroy everything that's good and beautiful in the world. And so be angry and and get on the right side and fight against them. And, And Paul's saying, no. No, he's not saying don't care, but he's saying we don't play by the same rules. Care about those things, be involved, act and work for what's good and right. But with thanksgiving, present those requests to God so that you will know his peace no matter how it turns out. Because we can't know peace on our own. If I'm just left to me, I'm not going to have peace because I didn't get the chicken. And that's why I need to present my request with thanksgiving to God. Because he's the reason that I have to give thanks. Not the outcome and not the answer. So that people could actually look at us And see something different in us. That we don't look angry and divided and confrontational and wound up about everything else that everyone in the world is angry and confrontational and wound up about. Because we have a peace and a thankfulness and a gentleness and a meekness that comes from knowing God's peace to us. Focus on God's love for you in Christ. His presence, His provision, His promise, His patience. And that kind of leads to the last thing. Focus on the beautiful. Focus on the beautiful. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Boy, that is not the world we live in either. Cynicism is the new cultural currency, isn't it? The refusal to believe that anything's good or that anyone's trustworthy or that anything could be pure or noble or really good. We buy into the world's framing, the the world's logic. We believe that those people are up to no good. So I've kind of taken the liberty to uh, edit and rewrite Paul here, maybe a, a credo from Philippians 7 for our day. Whatever is rumored or suspected, whatever is worst about those you disagree with, whatever crudeness is socially acceptable, whatever is sad and ugly and broken, whatever you tell people you wouldn't do yourself but you enjoy watching other people's do, if anything is cool, if anything gets you likes and shares from people you already agree with, focus on those things. And then you will be shallow and self-justified and anxious. That's the world we live in. It's the world we're encouraged to live in. And that's not restricted to any one group, right? I mean, millennials are frustrated with boomers, and boomers are scornful towards millennials and Gen X. And, you know, I'm just here in the middle saying, can't we all get along? I mean, it's, you know, the quick little things that we shoot off on social media, or they're not nothing. Maybe we mean it half-jokingly, but it shapes us. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian tries to like everyone and finds himself treating them kindly more and more as he goes on, including people he could have not imagined liking in the beginning. But the same spiritual law works terribly in the opposite direction. The Germans, he says, perhaps at first ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. Afterwards, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. The more cruel you are, the more you will hate. And the more you hate, the more cruel you will become. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions that you and I make every day are so important. And apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or a railway line or a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you had never dreamed of. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. What you have learned, what you have heard, what you have received and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, just a quick note, you may remember earlier in the letter, Paul talks about his anxiety for the church and his concern. And the word is the same one that's used here when Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. So is Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth. I mean, as a preacher, right, we tell people to do what we're not doing. No, that's a joke. You're supposed to laugh. We tell people to do what we're trying to do. There there may be some of that. But the word itself can both have a positive and a negative connotation. There's a a concern that parents have for our children, no matter what their age. We never stop having concern for them, for how they're doing, how they're getting along. Are they well? Are they following the Lord? But that can turn into anxiety and worry that becomes obsessive and grabs control of our hearts. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Paul has no control over the situation. He he carries this burden of concern for others. And he can't help because he's not there. And that could lead to anxiety. But look at what he says. We pray and we give our cares to God as often as we are anxious. We seek peace. We work for peace. We try to be people of peace. We imitate those who model peace. And we model a good and godly life for us. In other words, we do what we can, we pray and turn it over to God, and we trust Him for the results. And that's how the God of peace is with us. There are some things we can't control. So what can we do? We can pray, we can maybe try to get others involved. We turn it over to God as often as it becomes an anxious concern for us, and we trust that He is good, that He knows, and that He is at work. It doesn't mean the conflict will be resolved. It doesn't mean the things will work out the way that we hope, but the God who is himself peace, who makes peace with us through Christ, will be with you in whatever that ends up looking like. And that's really better than getting the outcome we want, isn't it? I I know we're supposed to say yes. It doesn't feel that way, right? Sometimes it really feels like I just... Want the outcome, and Paul is saying, "No, you really want Jesus. You really want Him because He is peace." In our former church, there was a guy who was uh, really gifted. He served in leadership. He played in our praise team. His family had been there uh, for generations. He had a lot of influence in the church. He, he was he could be really thoughtful and sensitive. But he was also an emotional bully. He could be verbally cruel and cut people down. He was a perfectionist. And if you didn't measure up to his standard of perfection, you would know about it. He and his family would sit together in church business meetings and mutter under their breaths to try and undermine the leaders and and what they were saying. And he'd been doing this for years by the time I got there, but nobody wanted to do anything about it. Well, we'll just pray and hope he gets better. I. So I approached him, and he was offended and resentful. So I went with some other people, and he was resistant, and, and the elders approached him, and he didn't want to hear from them or even respect them as having any authority in the church. We finally called in. We were able to convince him to meet with uh, some trained Christian mediators, and he reluctantly came to the meeting, but when it came time for him to acknowledge and confess and apologize for the ways that he had hurt people, he and his wife got up and walked out of the meeting. And we continued to pursue them for months. We prayed for them. We went to them and humbled ourselves and apologized for any ways that we had hurt him. And I'd love to say that he came to his senses he he apologized he repented and he was restored in his relationships but that didn't happen he walked out and he never came back and i'd love to say that i had a perfect peace through all of that but there were many sleepless nights and many gut-wrenching moments and many times of just burden and worry but i didn't go through it alone And as much as I was able, I I really did try to ask God to help me make this not about me, but about the church and about the cause of Christ and about our witness in the world. And I had godly men and women who came alongside to to help keep my head on straight and to help encourage and support me in that. And even in the middle of that difficulty, I, I really believed that we were doing what we could to pursue peace. And we really did know God's peace and believe that the God of peace was with us. Focus on the big picture. Maybe you're stuck in conflict. Maybe you're just harboring resentment, unforgiveness towards someone. Maybe there's something that's just not right and it's just roiling in you. Is it worth it? Maybe it is. And then maybe you need to talk to that person and seek people who can help you work through it. But if it's not, can you let go of it? for the sake of what really matters, for the sake of the gospel, maybe you're going through just hard, difficult, painful time, and and it's just so hard to step back from it and not just focus on what if and what am I going to do? And God says, as often as that comes up, come to me because you won't know peace on your own. Turn it over to me with thanksgiving, present that request and let me give you my peace. Don't overlook the blessings and the beauty that God has put around you here and now because that's part of knowing God's peace too. You won't know peace on your own. You can't control the world. You can't control what happens to you. You can't control what other people do, but you can know God's peace as you trust in him. Rejoice in the Lord and know his peace. Father, thank you so much for the rich blessing that you hold out to us in Christ. And Father, we confess how hard it is. We so want blessing and life and yet, Father, so often we end up falling into patterns and habits that work against the very peace and joy that you want to give us. Father, help us To be people of peace, not even just for ourselves, but as your church. That we would be a community of peace as we love for and care for one another and seek you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.